I am eager to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ from the third chapter of the book of Philippians and would like to invite you to please turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3, we are continuing our series on Philippians that is entitled Gospel Happiness and our sermon title today is Our Citizenship is in Heaven. Our Citizenship is in Heaven. Philippians chapter 3, we will read beginning in verse 12. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. May God bless the preaching of his word and may he use his word to draw our hearts and our minds heavenward this day. Amen. Former NBA player Charles Barkley, also known as Sir Charles or Chuck, is indeed a national treasure. He is, in my opinion, one of the great sports analysts of our day. There was an old commercial uh, with Barkley that sparked some controversy at the time. It was the 1993 Nike Air commercial in which Barkley is shown playing basketball, and then he says in the commercial, I am not a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Parents should be role models. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. And he said the reason that he wanted to do this commercial, and there was controversy around it at the time, the reason he said he wanted to do it was not to shirk his responsibility as a role model, but to have young people be more intentional in who they choose as role models. 
He said that he saw too many children and young men in particular making athletes and entertainers their example. And he said, we need to do a better job selecting our role model. Now, that is the concern of the Apostle Paul in this passage, although he makes the point a bit differently than Chuck did, but the point remains the same. In verse 17, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That is the example of Paul and his co-workers. Be intentional about your role models. Keep your eyes on them and imitate them in order to be influenced by them. You see, the question is not whether you and I will have role models and be influenced by others. The question is who those role models will be, who will have an influence on us. And in fact, having these flesh and blood examples to observe is one of the great blessings of committed membership in the local church. My wife, Megan, recently asked my teenage son, Ben, who he looks up to as a role model beyond family, and he mentioned Phil Vanderweide and Mikey Roman. I love that my kids are growing up in a church where they are able to keep their eyes on strong examples. There's something that God wants all of us to learn from the example of Paul. And the reason that this matters is because there are, we are told, many, according to verses 18 and 19, who are not faithful examples. In verse 18, Paul says he, he sheds tears as he writes this. We can see him pausing to weep, pausing to, to gain his composure. He says that there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. They may be professing Christians, but the fundamental problem is, and you see it in verse 19, their God is their belly. They give in to whatever sensual appetites and desires they have, to impurity and drunkenness, to gluttony and greed. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. They're actually proud of the things that they ought to be ashamed of. And they have minds, verse 19, set on earthly things. Their obsession is possessions and pleasure and popularity and power. Minds set on earthly things, and it has ruined a single-minded pursuit of Christ. All it takes to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to have your mind set on earthly things. There is a worldliness that has taken the Church of Christ captive in many places today. We have settled down in Vanity Fair and have made this world our home. Ours is a materialistic age full of comfort and affluence. Ours is an age of political idolatry and cultural outrage where all too often the things that most engage our, our passions, our election outcomes, and the future of our nation. Here's the thing. Over the centuries, biblical Christianity 
has focused relentlessly on the eternal and the spiritual, and that is the reason that Christianity has done so much good in the world. But now we're experiencing something in our day, and it has been the temptation throughout history, is that the focus of many Christians has been drawn away from spiritual pursuits, has been drawn away from heavenly mindedness, and the focus has shifted to material comforts, social concerns, political agendas, good health, earthly blessing. I'm, I am not saying that we should be indifferent to these things. I am saying that we are in danger of setting our minds on the things that are on earth rather than seeking the things that are above where Christ is. We are in danger of neglecting the upward call of God, our heavenly citizenship, the ultimate hope that we have as believers. And this is what God is reorienting our hearts to and calling us back to today. H.G. Wells has a story called The Country of the Blind. In the story, there is an isolated tribe in a remote valley deep in the mountains, far away from civilization. During a terrible epidemic, all of the villagers lose their sight. And from that moment on in the story, every baby is born blind. Blindness spreads over many generations, and eventually they have no concept of sight, the country of the blind. There is an explorer who discovers this people and he tries to explain sight to them, but to no avail. Because of their blindness, they don't understand their own condition and they don't know what the world is like. The explorer eventually falls in love with one of the young women in the village. When he asks for her hand in marriage, the village elders deny his request, citing his unstable obsession with sight. In time, he sees from a distance that there is a great rock slide that would destroy the village. And he attempts to warn the people, but once again, they scoff at his imagined sight. He flees during the rock slide, taking his bride with him as those in the country of the blind are destroyed. We are living in the country of the blind, where people are blind, so many people entirely blind to the realities that matter most. Sin is a disease that has blinded us to the gospel and to eternity. Christ has come into the valley of our darkness, the valley of our blindness, to rescue a bride, to open up our eyes to see and we're given Paul's example in this passage to awaken us to what really matters, to awaken us to a heavenly mindedness that profoundly reorients our passions and our priorities in this world. This entire passage focuses on the future orientation of the Christian community, the specific way that God wants Christians to emulate Paul, to look to the example of Paul, is in setting our minds on the things that are above and not on earthly things, and then to live all of life as citizens of heaven. 
What do we learn in this passage from Paul's life and example that we should keep our eyes on, that we should join in imitating? First, we press on to a future goal. In this passage, well, it's coming after the previous passage that we looked at last time where Paul has expressed a desire to treasure Christ more fully. And now, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, not that I've already obtained the resurrection from the dead that he just mentioned in the previous verse, or am already perfect. In other words, he's saying there is always more to know of Christ. We have yet to fully grasp him. There's one commentator who says Paul recognizes that his partial knowledge of Christ is a very long way from knowing Christ as much as he desires to know Christ. And so Paul first acknowledges his own imperfections. We never reach the point through the entirety of our Christian life where we can say, I have nothing more to learn. I have nowhere else to grow. Paul says, I am not satisfied with myself. I am not content with my current progress in Christ. I'm not resting on past achievements. He then expresses his determination to not be complacent even after decades of walking with Christ, his determination to not be complacent, but to always be pressing on. And I want to say to the older saints who are here today, we need you to run strong all the way to the finish line. You can't tap out. There's no retiring from the Christian race. We press on, and the reason we press on all our days is because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a glorious thing. There's no more glorious thing in all the world than to be taken hold of by Christ. Because when Christ takes hold of a sinner, he does so to never let go. And Christian, he has made you his own. And this is the great foundation of all of our joy and all of our security in life. There is a Savior who has taken hold of us. Christ has taken hold of you in his great love. And he did it so that we would spend our lives deepening our knowledge of him. Because he knows us, we want to know him. Because he loves us, we want to love him. Because he laid down his life for us, we offer up the whole of our lives as a sacrificial offering to the Lord. He has taken hold of us, and therefore our great desire is to take hold of him, this Savior who has loved us. Paul then expresses a single-minded resolve a single-minded pursuit of Christ. One thing I do, he says, one thing I do, my highest priority, the thing that captivates me, the thing that constrains me, the one thing I am focusing on is my knowledge of Christ, my relationship with him, my pursuit of Christ. And he says, and this is a glorious picture, he says he is forgetting what lies behind. Not that he's totally forgotten it, but he's not paying attention to it. His eyes aren't fixed on that. Forgetting what lies behind, he is pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. That is the heavenly, the otherworldly, upward call of God. He's using the language here of a, of a race, an athlete. And basically he's saying, I'm not looking back. I'm running the race and I'm not looking back because that would only slow me down. Some of you are having a hard time letting go of what lies behind. Whether it is achievements or regrets 
or failures or sin or circumstances or past decisions. You feel trapped by your past. And if you were honest, you would say, I'm constantly looking back. Friends, that is no way to run the Christian race. And God is on a rescue mission today to those who feel bound by their past to remind you that you are not enslaved to your past. Forget what lies behind. Forget what lies. Someone said when Satan brings up your past, you can bring up his future. Forget what lies behind. Christians are not defined by past accomplishments or by past mistakes, but by our future destination. The goal for the prize of the upward call means that we're running the Christian race with the finish line in view. That's where our eyes are fixed. The prize of the heavenly call is being with Christ in heaven, to know his surpassing worth, to behold his glory, to fully rest in his steadfast love. Our lives are spent every day moving toward that goal. One commentator said this, to know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous inquiry. That's the meaning of Paul's words here. To know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous inquiry, striving, pressing on to know more of the glories of our Savior. We press on to a future goal. Second thing we learn from Paul's example, we live in light of our heavenly citizenship. The walk or the lifestyle that we are to imitate in verse 17 stands in direct contrast to Verse 19, minds set on earthly things. And the reason that we are not consumed with earthly things, the reason that God's calling us away from having our minds set on earthly things is because, verse 20, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this imagery had particular meaning of significance to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, so citizens of Philippi were citizens of Rome, even though they were on Italian soil. This is a picture of the Christian in the world. Yes, we are citizens of an earthly nation, but far more fundamentally and far more importantly, we are citizens of another commonwealth. We are citizens of another kingdom. Christ has taken hold of us. He died to give us heaven. This world is not our home. We are, we are passing through. We are pilgrims. We are exiles. We are strangers here. I thank God that when I was 21 years old, I read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Christian Pilgrim that shaped my outlook on this life and on eternity. And I pulled it off the shelf and reread it this week. It continues to shape me to this day. The church is an embassy of heaven, which means as citizens of heaven, our calling is fundamentally and profoundly different from the kingdoms of this world and the political parties of our day. Our great allegiance is not to America or to any nation. It is to our home country. And our greatest passion is not focused on the things of earth. 
our citizenship is in heaven. And faithful Christians, if you are a faithful Christian, you will at times be accused of otherworldliness and of withdrawal. We do not withdraw. We are simply governed by our heavenly citizenship, which makes us entirely different from everyone else in this world. This, this citizenship involves a reordering, a profound reordering of all of our hopes, all of our passions, and all of our concerns. No longer can material, cultural, political, and temporal issues reign in our hearts to the detriment of the spiritual and the eternal. Now, I want to be clear, heavenly-mindedness is not opposed to physical well-being or to social concern. In fact, being a citizen of heaven is what sustains us through physical suffering and persecution. Being a citizen of heaven is what gives us endurance in our labors for justice in this world because our heavenly citizenship enables us to engage life in a fallen world with a biblical sense of proportion and with a healthy sense of detachment because our citizenship is elsewhere. Jesus taught, just let the teaching of Jesus rest on you for a bit. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And he taught, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So many people lay, what are they? The whole of life is spent laying up treasures on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. We lay up treasures in heaven, and that same spiritual and eternal focus, you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, you see it all there, you see it throughout the teaching of Jesus, that same emphasis continues through the entire New Testament. Peter tells Christians to set their hope fully on the return of Christ and the grace that will come at his appearing. The author of Hebrews writes to Christians who were being persecuted and imprisoned. That day may come for us, and it may not be too far off. And the author of Hebrews writes to them, and he commends them for joyfully accepting the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Hebrews 10, 34. Study the prayers of Paul throughout the New Testament. See what are his, you will see his concerns are profoundly spiritual and eternal. Decades ago, we sang a song, My hope is not in this life, nor this passing world's rewards, but my hope is in a life that will never fade. This has been the declaration throughout our history, that we are citizens of heaven, and we live in light of our heavenly citizenship. Third thing we learn from Paul's example is that we await a glorious hope. Last point, we await a glorious hope. Verses 20 and 21 explain that our citizenship is in heaven and that it is from heaven that our hope will appear. From heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that, 
That word Savior and that word Lord, those were political terms. Political terms commonly used for political rulers. And so here, God is redirecting our attention and our hope away from earthly powers to the return of Christ. Commentator Walter Hansen is especially helpful on this section. He says this in his commentary, The enemies of the cross followed the natural inclination of residents in Philippi to look to the emperor in Rome to exert his sovereign power to solve their problems, satisfy their appetites, rescue them from trouble, and protect them from danger. But the Christian who followed the example of Paul looked to Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Their hope for the future is not fixed on Caesar, the Savior and Lord of the Roman Empire, but on Jesus Christ, the heavenly Lord and Savior. What is the Christian hope? Our hope is not patriotism and politics. Our hope is not activism and social justice. Our hope is not in cultural transformation or dominion. To make this our hope would be to have our minds and our hopes set on earthly things and would be to make ourselves enemies of the cross and to displace the return of Christ as the blessed hope of believers. Christ is our hope. Christ and his return, that is the blessed hope. Again, Hansen says, Paul weeps over those who set their minds on earthly things, eagerly watching the news of the historical process of Caesar attempting to bring all things under the control of the Roman Empire. Christians have a different gospel. They eagerly wait for the good news of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming from heaven, to transform their bodies by his power and to bring all things under his control. We have a different gospel. The good news that we await is the appearing of our God and Savior, the Savior who came once and died on the cross for the sins of all who believe in him and rose from the dead on the third day. This Savior is coming again. He's coming again in glory. This is our gospel. The one who rescued us from wrath by his death will one day rescue us from all our troubles when he returns. We are told that our bodies will be transformed. Verse 21, these lowly bodies, we prayed earlier, these lowly bodies of sickness and disease and pain and aging and death, these lowly bodies will one day be glorified and healed, made, we're told, like his glorious body. And more than that, not only that, something even more glorious, not only our bodies, but the end of verse 21, all things in all the world will be subjected to the rule of Christ by the power of God, so that not only are we personally and individually changed, but we will inhabit a new world in which absolutely everything will be cosmically subjected to the reign of King Jesus. Everything in all of creation. That is the future hope of the believer. And it will only happen at the appearing of our Lord and Savior. Maybe one reason we're not more heavenly minded is all of our wrong ideas about heaven. There's a Far Side cartoon 
where a man with angel wings and a halo sits on a cloud. He's isolated. He's doing nothing. He looks bored, and there's a caption that shows his thoughts that says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. Is that heaven? Is that our hope? Is that what we await in glory? No, we await something far greater than this. Heaven is not boredom. Heaven is glory. Heaven is where Christ is. And Christ will one day return to vanquish every foe. He will return to establish his reign in all the earth. And we will be with him forever. This is your hope. This is what we build our lives upon. This is what gives the people of God stability in all of life. Let the nations rage. Let the earth be moved. Let hell endeavor to shake us all our days. We have a hope that is unshakable. We have a hope that is unchanging. We have a future that is certain. Victory in Jesus Christ at his appearing. Everyone who is a citizen of heaven has this hope. It is verses 20 and 21. Read them, reread them, memorize them, set your mind on these things. It is the glory of our hope. And I need to say this as well because there are some here who are living as enemies of the cross. And if you are living as an enemy of the cross, either by trusting in your own good works for salvation or living, you know, you're living for earthly things. You're living for earthly. You're not living for Christ. You might say, oh, I believe that he's not the center of your life. You're living for yourself. That description of the enemies of the cross is an exact description of your own life, that your God is in your belly. You do what you want to do. Your mind is set on earthly things. I want you to know that just as Paul shed tears, we have shed tears for you. We have prayed for you that the same God who opened up our once blind eyes would open your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and that you would turn from your sin and that you would trust in Christ even today, trust in the one who died in the place of sinners. And if you do, this hope will be yours. Christ will be yours. Eternity will be yours. A future beyond compare will be yours, belonging to all those who are citizens of heaven. We have this blessed hope as the people of God. Let us live as citizens of another country, citizens of heaven. I want to close with a story and invite the band to return. Story of a man named Michael that I wanted to share with you. A few years ago, uh, four years ago, Michael was rushed to the emergency room and it resulted in a long hospital stay, a major surgery, and he was diagnosed with a chronic and severe condition, an autoimmune disease. The Lord led Michael to, to make the end of Philippians 3, this text, uh, this theme of a resurrected and glorified body, to make that text the, the text of his daily prayers. And so day after day, he focused and he meditated on this passage. And as he studied and prayed through this passage, he found himself deeply moved. And you know one of the things that happened? His bodily struggles took a back seat to the arrival of a person. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says is this. He said, I found that the beauty of Christ, my beloved, was far more interesting, glorious, and inspiring 
than even the promise of earthly goods. He said, I found that while I look for the healing of my body, even that longed for good is not my God. Setting my mind on earthly things, even when given by God, would be to end in destruction. And he says that he has learned through suffering and from Paul to be heavenly minded and to long for the return of the Lord himself. Friends, this will be an anchor for us through everything that comes our way in life. Through every storm, through every trial, through every sickness, in prison, we await a Savior. In sorrow, we await a Savior. In all of our sickness, we await a Savior. Even in the face of death itself, we await a Savior. Knowing that our future is not destruction, our future is victory and glory. And the day is coming when we will know Christ and gain Christ like never before. And so Christian, forget what lies behind. Forget what lies behind and press on toward the goal. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Worship his name.